Hello, welcome to the 15-minute hour. My name is Corey. Today I'm joined by Seraphim and Calvin. Um, I'm drinking a amber beer lager of the Yungland variety. I am drinking a fat tire. I'm drinking a Mick Ultra light beer. Yeah, everyone at my work always drinks that. It's they, they have great marketing. Oh, they uh, use so they actually used uh, they were in the background a bunch of golf stuff. Oh, so people associate them with fit, wealthy men. Hmm. Which I'm trying to and do and America. <laughs> Red, yeah. white, and blue. Yeah. No, it's that we actually learned about in class. They have great marketing. So I figured I'd reward What them What class? Marketing. Consumer behavior. Oh. I told my professor about Bernays. He'd never heard of him. Really? So was, He's a consumer behavior professor. He doesn't know about Bernays? Yeah. I, t- I, I was disappointed. Actually. That's messed up. I assumed he would. I was like, hey. He's you? like the Charles Darwin of consumer behavior. So I recommended the... the Century of Self documentary in the book. I told them about it. What do you learn about it in that class if not Edward Bernays? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. It's it's not the best class. It's interesting, but a lot of it is kind of yeah. That I I kind of knew that if I had thought about it. For I I always thought that saying that if you don't know how to do, you teach or whatever it is. You know the saying I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always thought that applied most to business teachers. Yeah, unless it's like an old guy retired after doing it i've got one professor that i love because he was he was actually out there he went to prison for fraud nice now he teaches and it's like i have way more respect for him yeah i know that he's he knows the lawyer you know yeah i'm not i I think he actually knows stuff so i think the topic today is is halloween and holidays and you know these accusations of paganism blah 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 which if you've listened to this podcast you already know my response to that but um, I think we had some new segments we wanted to start off with. So the first one, this is a couple weeks old, but we thought we'd bring it up, is the chess champion. They found he was cheating by, he had a a butt plug that was vibrating, and someone was sending him, through vibrations, Morse code to help him win in chess. What, was it someone or was it an AI, I think, that was sending him the... It was either an AI or someone using it. And it was the leading chess champion, uh, was it Magnussen, I think? Yeah. Carl, Carlos, Carl Magnussen. Carl Magnussen, like that. Norwegian guy, I think. Something like Scandinavian that. of sorts. And, uh, you know, he was calling it off from the get-go. He was like, I don't want to face this guy. I think after he made one move, it was a very unconventional chess opening with the knight, if I recall correctly. And um, Magnussen quit right after that because he, he, knew, what was he knew something was, was off um, because it's the kind of move an AI would make. Um, I guess, but, um, and I, at the very least it wasn't, I mean, once you're at that level of chess, you're not even playing chess. It's just memorization, I think. And it's like, I did not practice the 250 move set that follows that opening move, (laughs) you know? So I think he called off, but also because he knew it was, uh, he was against AI and not a human. And the idea there is that, um, there's something poetic about it. You know, the sense that you're allowing yourself to be dominated, you know, fucked, um, in order to gain some sort of divine insight to conquer your opponent. So there's something very ancient and, you know, for lack of a better word, traditional and what's going on there. Yeah, it's really and, beautiful. Huh? It's really beautiful. You're right. Well, I'm not saying it's beautiful, but I'm saying there's something particular that I think a lot of people commenting on this affair probably aren't noticing, um, which is this idea of sacrifice. But um, <clears throat> this is like really high... 
way of talking about. I mean, the guy had a butt plug in his ass to win chess. Like, calm down a little bit. No, but I'm saying, I'm saying, the vibrating feet thing. I don't know about the feet. I thought it was in the butt. So, so it became a problem. People having like devices in their shoes to cheat. So they started searching people's shoes and socks before chess matches. That's nothing. That's not a sacrifice. But he took it to the next level. Right. I'm saying there's like there's nothing really traditional about feet and well maybe Achilles I guess but. There's a lot of traditional myths that you give yourself over to a power or an entity sexually and you gain some sort of divine insight. Usually it's with women. Uh, this guy's a dude. But there's still something in that, in that, there's something, I'm just saying there's something mythological or Jungian or archetypal going on here that is beneath the surface that a lot of people aren't paying attention to. That's all I'm saying. Additionally, right, so the, the chess community is up in a hissy about all this, about, you know, whether or not it's a legitimate thing. And I think more and more is coming out to say that he actually was cheating or whatever. Um, and he's admitted to cheating in the past, but he says he wasn't cheating this time or something like that. I haven't really kept up to date on the story, so I might be totally wrong. Maybe he later, later on he did. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, Magnuson or whatever called it out from the get-go. Um, I think one thing, so one thing I'll say is that chess apparently was solved as a game, which mm -hmm. means... AI um, can display the perfect game, so unbeatable basically against human players, unless human players just want to memorize the AI thing. So it's all a memory at this point. It's not any strategy. Um, I think they were saying Go was still unsolved, but now it is. I'm not sure. You know, someone okay. can correct it. Go, Go, the the Chinese game, um, which is you know a strategy game like chess, but even more um, permutational. Um, which, which speaks to this nature of games in general and in games are mimicking reality that all of reality is itself sort of solvable, um, maybe, I don't know. But in, in either case, it's like this idea that a game is no longer playable or interesting because it's been solved. Um, I remember my friend actually said that he lost interest in chess after it was solved. But I don't know, there's something interesting going on there too. I don't really have much to say on this, but... You know, I'm just throwing things out there. Things are only interesting and so far they can't be solved. Yeah. No, I'm trying to think about that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> next news it's art. like, it's like, oh, it's okay. like if, if everyone wants, it's like you're playing cause you want to be the best. I mean, people practically know they're not going to be the best, but if you know that the ideal has already been found, then it's like, the thrill of the, the chase. Out. Yeah, it takes yeah. the mystery, it takes the chase out of there. Because yeah. you know what the upper limit is. It's kind of like Apollo chasing Daphne, and Daphne being turned into a tree by her father is AI. And AI is the father in that myth. So it's like the game is Daphne. Yeah. Or the hunt of Apollo after Daphne. And the hunt is destroyed because it gets frozen or solved. And it's frozen by the artificiality of existence or the artificiality of intelligence, intelligence that is made artificial. It becomes a tree. It becomes this rigid, dead thing that just is there and is no longer chaseable. Yeah. Is, is that a good segue into the universe thing? Oh, that the universe yeah. isn't real or whatever? Yeah, so the universe is not re locally real. It was proven by a physics Nobel Prize winner. Now, I remember reading this article and looking at, like, the, the links for the research stuff, and, like, oh, this was already known. That's, what, that's always my impression with these pop science stuff is, like, they're just repeating things that were already, you know, published, but now it's, like, a, a, be, a better writer, I guess. Um, my only comment is that, you know, so many of these things I read, and I'm just, like, 
back in the day, science education, if you were studying physics, you would read Newton's Principia Mathematica. If you were studying biology, you read Darwin. No one reads this stuff anymore. I read Darwin as a philosophy student, and all my biology friends hadn't even picked up any book by Darwin, which is such a shame because Darwin actually has a lot of interesting like theology at the beginning of Origin of Species. And, and Newton himself is basically like a crazy Gnostic alchemist. So there's so much of this philosophy behind the science that scientists are totally ignorant of, and they're, for that reason, in a way, so many paces behind. But for example, in this, from what I understood the article that I read, they're just saying things that, you know, Plato could have basically told you. I mean, so much of this, this physics stuff is also just, there's so much philosophy already built into it that makes it speculative. So it's like what you're really saying in these pop science articles, especially things like the title that grab you, are basically philosophical interpretations of studies and things that have come out of like the Large Hydron Collider or whatever. But I always take these things with a grain of salt. In either case, my impression is that the deeper you get into physics, the more you realize that this reality is not confined to an empirical observation of it, that things actually go beyond and are affected by empirical observation, right? You know, that's the famous double slit experiment in quantum physics. So I don't know. All I'm saying is like most of what I, I find on the edge of modern science is, is this reconfirmation of centuries, millennia old philosophies that have already been saying this. I guess a critic would say like, well, if you have philosophers, they're going to say every possible thing. So one of them have to turn out right. And like, yeah, but it's significant that Plato was the one who was right, which I've always been hedging my bets on. Plato is my homeboy. He is my, he's the guy I've been putting my bets on from the beginning that if anyone understood the universe, it was this guy. If anyone understood the universe, who's not a God, who was understanding it from a purely human, maybe divinely inspired point of view, it was Plato, right? He, he gets it. And every time I'm talking about it, it's like, you know, try, people are like, what should I read for philosophy? I want to try to understand philosophy. Like, you know, it's like what Whitehead says, everything is a footnote to Plato. And the problem is, is that you can read all these platonic scholars and they don't really understand Plato. They have no idea what Plato's talking about. They're talking about some bullshit. Just read Plato. Don't read secondary literature until you've read Plato. Read most of his dialogues and then you can start reading secondary literature because then at least you have an idea of what's actually happening. Whenever people want to study philosophy, they read all the secondary literature, and secondary literature sets bullshit. It should really be forbidden for most of early education, secondary literature, because it's other people's opinions. You got to read the source text. You got to read Plato. But yeah, Plato vindicated yet again. I think our first conversation on text, you recommended Plato. Yeah, he, he's, he's where you start. You know, read, read the Greeks, read Homer, read all the literature and stuff, because Plato's borrowing out of that. But... Um, once you got Plato down, you might want to skip ahead a bit every now and then because you live in modernity, you have to function modernity, so you got to realize what the hell is going on. So you got to read people like Nietzsche, Spinoza, Descartes, sure. But you should really, for the most part, try to build yourself up chronologically, starting with Plato, Aristotle, the Neoplatonists, the Church Fathers. A lot of philosophy courses, they might teach a little Plato, but they have a really dumb interpretation of them. And then they might teach Aristotle, and then they skip like a thousand years over to maybe Aquinas, if at all. And then they just jump to Descartes, you know, out of nowhere. It's like, you basically have no idea what's actually happening for most of history. You have no idea what the intellectual tradition is. You're, you're, you're coming out as a supposed scholar, uh, but you have no idea what's going on. All you know is Descartes, who's, you know, just a guy at the end of the day, shitting on his toilet, doesn't know what's going on. And you start there and you're like, oh, this is philosophy. It's like, no, it's not. This is, this is, you know, this is retard think. <laughs> this is dumb think. 
This is what they feed you to convince you to. This is this is what they feed you to convince you that you know you should buy a bunch of stuff and that you know you think therefore you exist and nothing matters and you're just a puppet and we can do whatever we want with you because we're rich. That's Descartes, you know. At the end of the day, that's Spinoza. No, I love Spinoza and I have a lot of much more respect for Spinoza than I do Descartes. Spinoza had the balls to take it where Descartes didn't want to, but. Um, you know, still, you have to read these people in context. Otherwise, you're, you're just lost. And at the end of the day, everyone's a Kantian now, whether or not you read Kant. Even if you don't know who Kant is, you're a Kantian. And unless you read Plato, you're not going to escape that matrix. You got to take the red pill. You got to take the Plato pill. So. All right. The last article we had, this was the headline, How Nuns Got Squeezed Out of the Communion Wafer Business. Altar bread was once made by hundreds of communities of nuns across the U.S., now a for-profit company controls the entire market. Thoughts on that one? So this is very interesting. I mean, on the on the immediate surface level, it's just like, well, that's simony. Okay, so there's that. But what's more interesting to me, you know, simony is this originally a mortal sin, like usury, which our modern economy is based on. But as the Catholic Bishop of Lexington said in defense of gay marriage, the church used to talk about Usury is a mortal sin and no longer talks about it. So why not gay gay people, you know, just doing whatever they want to do? I always just thought it was a very funny defense because it's like the evolution of Catholic moral theology is just, it's not like we're going to sophistically try to alter these things. We're just going to stop talking about it. But in the same respect with like simony here, yeah. So, but in either case, right, what interests me about this, there seems to be something um, and craft. And if you read Tolkien, he talks about this with the dwarves. There's like a ritual of craft. It's like something about the aspect of the energy. You probably hear this most with cooking. Like there's love in this cooking. That's why it tastes better. If you visit a lot of monasteries, not really Catholic, but Orthodox monasteries, the food always tastes amazing, even though it's very simple ingredients. You ask the monk, why is it so good? It's because we always say the Jesus prayer when we're cooking, whatever. But it's true. I mean, it's weird. But if you if you visit that, because I visit a lot of monasteries, Catholic and Orthodox, and the Orthodox monasteries definitely always taste really good. And so there's something going on there. There's like an energy that's being transferred from the person to the food. But I think it's true with any craft. Um, and there's something about, even to this day, the best beer, according to a lot of beer enthusiasts, is made by the these monks in Germany. You have to order far ahead of time, like two or three years in advance. And they give you just like four bottles of it. But um, there's, there's, there should be, you know, I, I've been to a lot of monasteries that make their own beer or wine, but they don't sell it. And I, I can't say much of beer. I don't know that much about beer, but I'll taste the wine. I know a bit about wine. And I'm like, this wine is like really, really good. Like this is a good wine. Like you, could, you can make a market off of this. And when I ask them why they don't, in America at least, it's because there's so many regulations. And I always said, you know, if I was like the president or something, one of the first things I would do is give all monasteries an exemption to the bullshit Puritan laws that we have about alcohol and whatever. Let them bypass all the broad milk laws, all the bullshit, you know, laws that America has for why we can't have real brie or whatever. Because monasteries and in, in, in crafting things, even if they're not, you know, directly saying the Jesus prayer or whatever, you know, any sort of mantric uh, aspect that they're communing into the product, the very life they live, in theory, if they're doing it right, carries with it a certain level of energy that they're passing over to their craft. 
And this is so contrary to the industrialist, Fordist, modern capitalist view of um, economy, but it's actually like having people craft out of their own immediate environment. I mean, there's definitely a Heideggerian reading here, right? Which is that um, the pot that's handcrafted versus the one that's mass produced has being in it. It's something that's been used and has gone through its own history and story versus just a pot that looks like any other in Walmart. Um, but there's something even beyond that in this aspect that there's a way of life dedicated to that craft, especially in this idea of a sacrificial identity that a, a, a potter in the world is a potter, but a monk doing pottery is not a potter or a monk doing cheese is not a cheesemonger. They divorce themselves from that identity because their identity is clothed in something else divine. So it's that sacrifice, not only the sacrifices that a, a monk has to make initially, but the sort of sacrifices that the monk makes in relationship to their work, that they, in theory, are not meant to be attached to their work, that the work itself becomes divinized in that aspect, and it takes on its own quality of being. So to say nothing about the obvious simoniac, simoniacal, I don't know, aspects of, of what's going on here with the nuns and the wafers, there's, there's something else being lost, which is this aspect of the devotion of that life that is missing out in the being of the product. I mean, ideally, I think pretty much everything should either be produced at home or like a local baker or monks. But I think the ideal economy would focus most of the labor to the guild system and to the monks. The guild system, because it's basically monastic in the application of what they're doing as an art, no matter how mundane the project it is they're trying to do. I think the guild system was probably the peak of human economics. Um, and after that, it just kind of goes downhill. But it was like applying that wisdom of monasticism in so far that the project itself is considered something kind of holy that the guild system was promoting versus this mass-produced industrialism of products. There's no art anymore. That's all I have to say. That was on the news headline. What's the topic for today? Right, so the topic is... <laughs> the topic is, is Halloween, um, particularly, but also just holidays in general. Um... I'm not like an expert on Halloween. I haven't like read a lot of books about this, but I mean, first off, I want to address these, these common criticisms. You probably hear more in America than elsewhere about the pagan roots of Halloween, uh, to which I say, yeah, it is, it is pagan, but I say pretty much every holiday is. That's why, again, I've always respected my friend Brian Ketterer, the Protestant, because he doesn't celebrate any holiday. He says it's all paganism. Um, so I think that the criticism that it's paganism is moot. If you want to say it's pagan, don't celebrate Christmas because Christmas is also pagan. What does that actually mean, right? So all we're saying here is that there's these holidays that borrow traditions from the cultures that they were originally in. If you read Justin Martyr, again, I feel like I'm just repeating myself from every other podcast here. But all these pagans had aspects of them that were oriented to the Logos. And when Christianity comes into those lands, it takes what is good and brings it back into the fold. So it's not just that the Jews are being fulfilled by Christianity, but all the pagan religions are being fulfilled by Christianity. Yes, there were certain aspects of Judaism that were an error when it got out of the line. There are aspects of paganism that were an error, like child sacrifice or whatever. But there were still good things in paganism as there are good things in Judaism that Christ comes to fulfill. So Christ is the fulfillment, I think C.S. Lewis says this, he says, Christ is the fulfillment not only of uh, Judaism, but also the pagan religions and faiths. Um, and so what we see, some holidays are more overt about this, especially Halloween. But no matter how many times or how hard you try to gerrymander or sophisticate your way out of this, 
any clear side of view of history would show you that pretty much every holiday, whether even if it's Christian in its orientation, is borrowing a lot of pagan elements. And again, the pagan-Christian dichotomy is mostly bullshit. The question is whether or not these religions that were descended from Adam, right? If you take this literal historical view that the church fathers typically do, all religions are Adamic, all religions are Abrahamic, all religion, not Abrahamic, but they're all um, Christian or proto-Christian. Why? Well, Christianity is a true religion. You have Adam who knew that true religion, and then he gives it to his sons. And for the most part, they're practicing true monotheism. But then, you know, Tower of Babel, the flood, all this other bullshit, and that stuff starts to deteriorate into things like polytheism. So this is the opposite view of the modern anthropological view that it goes animism, polytheism, monotheism. Again, these terms I've said in past podcasts are pretty much bullshit. But if you want to go with these terms, it's, in my opinion, it's the opposite. It starts with monotheism and it degenerates from there. But in either case, no matter how far away you go, even to straight up demon worship, you're still borrowing aspects from that original Adamic religion, that original Adamic faith. When Abraham comes and he's a prophet that's taking that reignition of the Adamic faith to the Jewish people and, and the Muslim people as well. But what is essentially going on, in, even outside of Abraham to all these other pagan faiths, is that they're being reignited in their own way with their own prophets, okay? They're not prophets on the level of Moses or anything, but they're people who had humility, like Confucius or Laozi, who, or even the Buddha, whose humility allowed them to receive particular divine knowledge. Socrates is another great example because he had his own um, daemon who was following him around, right? And that allowed them to receive particular divine information that even before these people had been passed on in traditions and cultures in various ways that were reflecting the divine truth. You know, it's kind of like Maximus or Justin Mater says, which is that nature itself is the imprint of Christ. So when the pagans are worshiping nature, they're worshiping Christ indirectly. So it should not surprise us when the pagans have certain rituals or understandings of reality or the seasons and time that are actually far more correct than modern Christians are. And a great example of that is the calendar in time, that time itself is something that is sacred. And that because time is sacred, you have certain allotments of the time and the seasons based on the planetary motions, the bodies, what we now call the sciences of astrology, in relation to what that's doing to your soul at that specific time. And rituals are a way to orient your will and your understanding in a particular way in relationship to that sacrality of time. So when we have things like Halloween or Easter or these you know, pagan festivals that were you know, borrow to create the Christian festivals, what we're doing is orienting our will to a divine, intuitive understanding of logos through nature that has been oriented by God. So what is Halloween in that respect? Pretty much what you'll see in a lot of cultures around the time of fall, which, which is basically, so, so all the four seasons have their own corresponding elements. Um, you know, summer's obviously fire, which is activity, potentiality, um, going into the motion, then you have um, winter, which is water. That's contemplation, emotion, um, the unconscious, the feminine. You have spring, which is earth. That's vitality. It's partially death in some respect because it's the maggots chewing at the bodies that create the soil that makes it fertile for the plants to, to grow and bloom coming out of the death of nature. But then you have um, fall, which is uh, or autumn, which is is air. That's the intellect. That's true contemplation. That's going into the depths. And if you look at it astrologically, that's that's very strong, like Libra, Scorpio energies. So that's the sun and the days are getting dimmer. You're going into death. You're going into contemplation. The leaves are dying. The animals and the bugs are going into burrows. So although, although winter is often seen as death, and in some respects it is, it's really autumn that's true death. That's the initial fruit of death. And in autumn, it's going into death and contemplation. 
and it's the contemplation of the darkness. It's, it's, it's the psychoanalytic season because it's the time where you're going into the unconscious. Winter's when you've already gone through that and you're just sitting there with what you have. That's when you're coming out of the underworld into spring to give birth to the hero, the new light, the resurrection, right? With it's Easter, right? But that the winter is preparation for that. That's stasis. But fall, you still have motion, and it's the motion into death. It's the motion into the underworld. That's that's a that's Odysseus descending into the underworld, right? So, or Christ descending into Hades after the cross. That's autumn. And in autumn, with the situation of death, what you enter into is a time when the spiritual, and this is something, again, understood in a lot of different cultures, Native American, European, African, not that Africans really have something equivalent to, to fall, but it seems to be similar to this, you know, antecedent to this seasonal aspect of getting into colder, less day, less sunlight, um, that something happens in between the spiritual and the physical world where the plane or the sheaf that normally divides those two for our own protection and for the protection of the lost and the, and the, and the souls and the beyond is blurred. And the two worlds cross over, they kiss. And it's around the beginning of November or late October that that maximal point of equinox between the spiritual and the physical world manifests. It's, it's the Venn diagram almost becoming a circle, so to speak, if you want to put it in those, in those words. So what you see in a lot of cultures and traditions that understand this intuitively is that it's a time, one, it's a time to pay respects to the dead. So you'll see this manifest particularly in, say, like Mexican culture, the Deus de Monmetros, is the day of the dead, is where you go to put the food on the graves, which is a very early Christian practice, by the way. You would go to the graves house and you put food there. But it's, an, it's also a very common pagan practice. You leave food for your ancestors, things they liked, pipe tobacco, whatever. Um, so it's a time when you commune with the dead, where even the dead come back into this world to walk and be with us. And so it's a time to give thanks to your ancestors, to your family. It's when the understanding that you know, what we call a civilization, what we call a family is not limited or privileged only to those who are in the living. It is also privileged to those who are in the dead. So why Halloween is so important, I think probably the most important holiday in modernity is because in our obsession with democracy and privileges and oppression, we've forgotten the most oppressed, unprivileged class of people, which is the dead. In modernity, we just have the passive assumption that the dead are dead. That's a very Protestant belief. You know, that's, it's like this idea that the dead are just dead. They're just waiting. They're already in heaven. We have no relationship to them. But if you look at this much more ancient, uh, even Catholic or Orthodox belief, but in, in at least pagan belief, basically anything that's not Protestant, is that being dead is not being inactive. It's just going to another state that is more separate from this world in most cases, the exception being around what we call Halloween. Um, so in that state, we enter into that world where we are also going into the world of the dead. Now, when you get into that realm, there's also a lot of dangers that come over because you're dealing with occult forces, which is why in a lot of cultures, you know, you have the, probably not pronouncing it correctly, but in the Celtic culture, the Samhain, the Samhain, um, which is where they would put on these masks or they would don particular clothing that was often scary. It's the same motif you see in gargoyles or a lot of Japanese cultures with these very terrifying masks they put on. A lot of Hindu cultures, for instance, um, Shiva with the, with the terrifying face, right? But it's kind of like Mary in Christianity. She's protecting. She's protecting us from the onslaught of the demons. So the aspect there is that in order to scare away the demons or these bad spirits that want to play tricks on you, you have to give something in exchange or you have to scare them off. 
So you scare them off by donning scary masks or you offer something in exchange for their tricks. So you give them trick or treats, right? So the, the, the whole candy aspect, which I think is a degeneration of this and very capitalistic. But the original idea here is that it was a time for mischievousness. It was a time for children to go into their dark side so that they could take the dark side in and become more mature as adults. It was a time when you were meant to unleash the inhibitions of the profane. It was a time when you were allowed to celebrate things kind of like similar to Mardi Gras in French culture. It was, it was like, if you're going to sin, let this be the day. It's like, get it out of you so you can prepare for Lent. That's kind of similar to what's going on here in a lot of cultures. Not necessarily these grievous things like murder, rape, fornication, or whatever, but it was a time to get out that shadow, the shadow that we repress throughout most of our life, most of our day, had its time to come into the trickster or the fool archetype in Halloween. Halloween, if there is a, if there is a holy day of the fool, it is Hollow's Eve. Hallow's Eve, you know, April Fool's, obviously, but that's kind of a modern version. But um, Halloween or the, the time of autumnal eve, of, of the eve of the equinox, that's the time when the fool has his game and the ball's in his court. And that's the time that you let that shadow come out and you play tricks on people. That's why Halloween and so far its modern variations exist. The whole TPing your neighbor's house is actually more authentic than the trick-or-treating. And it would be better if that was the option that was taken. Unfortunately, nowadays, everyone's so you know, um, I don't know what the word is, but so authoritative that that's much more difficult to do for modern youth than it is for youth of the past. But not uh, both of those are kind of degenerations. I mean, really what you're looking at here is something deeper in the aspect of playing tricks and doing things that you wouldn't be accustomed to. It's also very customary to go to graveyards to visit cemeteries and pray for the dead. Because again, the idea is that at least in Christianity, borrowed from the pagan roots, is that prayers in relationship or in the locality of the dead are more effective because that boundary is being crossed over in this time. It's a time when all the spirits are around so you have more communication with them. So what is the advantage of getting that out, of having a day in which you're allowed to indulge in these things and especially saying when it occurs in the year, um, as you were talking about with the elements and stuff, right before we enter into this sort of dead reluctive period, not reluctive, um, um, reclusive period. Uh, what, what's what's the advantage of having such well, a day? Again, it's like Mardi Gras, right? Because Mardi Gras is time of indulgence before when? Before Lent, before Ash Wednesday. What happens in winter through spring? Lent. So the, in, in many cultures, it's not Lent per se where you're taking on this very intense fast, but it was an idea that you're doing less work in the fields. You're having time to be with your family. You're having more time to do things like spiritual prayer and contemplation and meditation. So there was this idea of an asceticism associated with winter going into spring to prepare for the renewal of uh, the plants and life, virility, and therefore having to go back to the fields and work. So what happens in autumn is that in preparing for that time of contemplation, you have the harvest, you enjoy all the fruits that you've been working all throughout summer, which is the hardest time of work. Remember, summer's fire. It's pure action, pure activity, right? Getting everything out there, being quick, being intense. Now it's the time to reap the rewards, okay? It's the harvest. It's the Thanksgiving, okay? It's gratitude. And, and in that respect, right, with Halloween, it's, um, or just this general time of, for instance, in, in the Catholic day, it's All Saints Day and All Souls Day, where all through November the 1st and 2nd, it's in the original word for Halloween, Hallow's Eve, what's the hallowing of the graves where all the saints and souls came out of the graves uh, and went uh, out of purgatory into heaven. Um, it is the time when um, 
being prepared for that state, right, and taking enjoyment in that communion with the spirits, getting all of that shadow out makes it so you don't have to deal with it. I mean, it's basically the wisdom that Freud gave us very graphically in The Return of the Repressed. The more you repress something, the stronger it's going to come out in very neurotic ways. So if you're going into Lent or you're going into winter, which is a time of asceticism, contemplation, having more times in your hand, idle hands of the devil's work, if you get it out before you do that, there's a certain, you know, Protestants hate this idea, but there's a great wisdom in things like Mardi Gras, like go ahead, do your fornication, do your drinking, do your merriment, because once you have that out, you don't have this sort of hypocrisy, which is, and from the Christian point of view, is actually much worse than just doing the sin. That's going to come out when you take that time of contemplation and asceticism. Again, so much of this is so foreign to us because we no longer have a actual calendar life cycle that's based off the seasons and doing field work because of industrialism and capitalism. But it's still deep there in, in us, in our, in our unconscious, nonetheless. So in getting that shadow out, you're putting it in front of you. You're becoming aware of it. And because you're now aware of what you're capable of, it's not going to surprise you when you go into that intense fasting and asceticism. When you're being ascetic, when you're fasting, when you're contemplating, when you have more free time, that's when your demons come out. That's why being a monk is so difficult if you're doing it correctly. And it, you know, not to say whether or not monks generally do, but if you are doing it correctly because you're in that state of contemplation, sins you would have never even thought of. You basically become the worst sinner because every sin that any person ever does, you become aware of that capacity within you because you're so isolated and so removed of any entertainment or amusement, you know, literally to be without amuse, someone who inspires you. You become so um, within the muse, right? You're not being amused, so you have the muse. You're becoming so self-aware that all these things, the sins of the world, and, and why there's such an impulse to pray for the world as a monk come upon you in that moment in, in those times. So as a person living in the world, getting that shadow out then and there, it's not going to have as much control of you when you go into that mode in the winter, when you go into that state of contemplation and asceticism, whether it's for religious reasons or, again, just the de facto state because you're not in the fields all the time, you have a lot more free time. Um, so it, it's, it's this idea of facing the shadow, facing your demons, letting it get out and seeing what you're capable of, letting yourself run wild for a night. It's like the, you know, it's kind of a stereotype and not really, you know, even a lot of Amish communities really even do this, but like a Rem Springa, right? It's letting you see what the world has to offer. So that you not indulging it means a lot more. Yeah, it's better to, to face the shadow, the demons, than it is to just repress them. Um, because when you repress them, they you just make them stronger. The ideal is to suppress, right? Freud, for Freud, all psychoanalysis is doing is taking what's repressed and making it suppressed. You know what this reminds me of, Corey? Scandalous to say. It reminds me of Jonathan's point in a monasticism podcast. Right, which is why I was trying to say that there is truth to what he was saying, but it didn't come across very well, I think. <laughs> I want to point out on that podcast... After we recorded it, I said, one particular friend of ours is going to really hate this podcast. And you said, oh, no, don't worry. I think she's really going to like it. And there has not been a single time that we have seen this person that we have not gotten into a yeah, fight a lot, about how much she hates a lot of the more, that episode. A lot of the orthodox are more pious. So, so I think Jonathan I... controversial. The, the Jonathan talking about monasticism. Okay. So I... I, I, I kept saying, like, the, you know, what Jonathan was saying, that there was truth to it that you find in the church fathers, which is exactly what I'm talking about now. Now, again, that being said, right, 
this is something that happens at a particular point in time of the year for everyone. It's not something you just indulge in consistently. Although there are people like St. Mary um, of Egypt who did do that for their life and then had that turn. But um, what you see in the modern sort of Protestant Puritan idea is the opposite. It's like, no, the shadows aren't meant to be confronted. You just leave them there. And I think that's also partially why Protestants, you know, very serious pious Protestants tend to be so antagonistic to Halloween um, because there is that aspect of confronting the repressed. It's a very anti-American holiday in its roots because Americanism is about, and why Americans don't like psychoanalysis in general, is because it's Americanism is about not thinking about the shadow. It's about repressing the shadow and just focusing on the bright, colorful, good things. It has very little depth to its culture, and in this respect, psychological depth. Um, versus, say, you know, European countries or Mexico or what we might say are romantic or basically any other place in the world, really, which have always had a wisdom. America is very unique, and I think as Americans we tend to not realize this, that we live in a culture that's pretty ahistorical in its relationship to the dark or the unconscious. Um, whereas most cultures throughout history have uh, either embraced that full on or given certain times of the year where that was meant to be embraced. And whereas Halloween, like other holidays, it's been so commercialized. Uh, it's even, even if you're intentionally celebrating Halloween, it's very difficult to actually connect yourself with what Halloween is meant to connect yourself with on a spiritual level. This is why you have to understand that all these holidays, even things like Halloween, which we think of as like purely commercial, are actually deeply religious spiritual holidays that are meant to give something beneficial to our spiritual growth. But pretty much, even again, even people who love Halloween generally don't think of Halloween this way. But it is a religious holiday. Again, a, a very pious Catholic would be praying at the grave sites, you know, of their ancestors on the day of Halloween. Uh, so Halloween's like the devil's day. That's the day when the devil gets his tricks. That is the day when Luther literally, you know, did the the thesis, the 95 thesis on the church door. That Halloween is the day of the Protestant Reformation. That is the day Protestants celebrate. But in traditional Christian understanding of the calendar, Halloween is the devil's day. What happens on Halloween is the devil having his victory. It's like the one day that God lets Satan have his victory. I just always thought it was funny that Protestants celebrate Halloween as the day of reformation, but it's understood as being the day that the devil has his victory, right? And then what happens on November 1st? That's the day of all souls. That's the day when all the pious have their holiday. And then you have the highest level, which is the next day, which is the day of all saints. And that's the day when all the saints in heaven are glorified, when, they, when heaven comes down to earth, all right? So you get three days. You get the day of hell, you get the day of purgatory, and you get the day of heaven. Halloween is the day of hell. That is the trickster. That is the shadow. That is the Satan, the adversary within us, getting its last laugh before we go into winter. So when people say that there is something demonic about Halloween, they're not wrong, but they're wrong to not celebrate it. Because true Christianity is about recognizing the devil. It's like Jesus says, make peace with your adversary on the way, right? With the Hasatan. It's Job being tempted by Satan. It's Christ being tempted by Satan. The devil is not your enemy. As the church fathers say, the devil is your best ally. Or as St. Pacomius, the church father, the abbot says, you know, it's like second or third century, wherever I go, there is the devil. The devil is always there as your adversary, as your lawyer, to test you, to put you into the state where you're in God's grace by testing your conscience. So Halloween is that time on the calendar year where we all do that as a spiritual community. 
It's where we let the devil come out and have his last laugh. We give the devil his due. So what would you say inappropriate way to, so, okay, you got the day of the devil, the day of the souls, the day of the saints, you know, and you do the kind of the hell purgatory heaven. How would someone in modernity celebrate this? Like, how would you recommend someone acknowledging or trying to participate in this holiday today where it's so non-existent in our culture? Is it even possible? You have to make it existent for yourself. I mean, that's kind of what we do with our symposiums and stuff, but you know, you can go to the graveyard and you can pray for your relatives or just any graveyard, pray for random people. You can um, try to take a walk in an autumn forest. I mean, I think there's something going on there. Take a walk in grave sites in general. But it's you're asking a deeper question, which is what do we do with modernity? Modernity has so divorced us from our traditions in general. It's not just a problem of Halloween. It's a problem of any holiday. It's a problem of living in general. Um, industrialism and modernity have so, you know, Dis- disconnected us from that. It's it's a question beyond this immediate topic. But, um, you know, and, and there are writers like Evola who have already said that much better than I have about what you do in that situation. You ride the tiger. You accept that modernity is here to stay and you just kind of take advantage of it while yeah. still being a aristocrat of the soul, as Evola will say. This is kind of sidetracking for a second. I know we don't have much time left, but I think the element of time is just very interesting to me, especially how we understand it. So I guess it's coming from talking about all these different days of, you know, it's a day for this, day for that. And, and we don't really have any sense of that. And holidays are just sort of this very, um, just, uh, n- 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 there's no depth to it. It's just like, it's either the day that you get off work so you can barbecue, or it's a day where you do something. It's like St. Patrick's Day, oh, that's the day I go out and get really drunk. Or Halloween, that's the day I go out and eat a bunch of candy and, for costumes and drink with my friends or something. I mean, it's these holidays don't really have any spiritual significance. They're very, very um, modernized, secularized. Yeah, not just modernized, secularized, but they, there's no substance. They're, yeah. they're, they're very fluff. There's no spiritual they're fluff. And thinking about time in general and the um, time. Um, God, I'm sorry, I can't talk. Is Calvin? You're circling me with the fly swatter, and I'm just terrified. Um, Yeah, the fact that the time has no real spiritual significance anymore. Um, it does seem like we really lost something. And I, I remember I, I was I was reading something not too long ago, and I don't know how accurate this is, but it was about like about the, the, the development of the calendar as we know it. And one thing I found interesting, this was going back to, I don't know, ancient Greeks or ancient Romans. I, I don't remember what time, and maybe I'm off in some of this, but from at least what I was reading, I thought it was very interesting that like winter itself was actually a time that didn't even have very like specific months attached to it. It's like the full Ontario. Yeah. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Like it was unnumbered. Like you had the months that corresponded to the spring to the fall and then you hit winter and it's like this dead timeless zone, you know, where, where it's just, and I think that's actually kind of beautiful where you're not even recording time. You're just hibernating. And you and I have talked about this before. We might have mentioned in the podcast, but like the way that we get so obsessive about time in our modern culture, like, you know, like like you and I go to work and it's like, we're three minutes late. And our boss is like, you're three minutes late. It's like, that never exists. There was no such thing as Yeah, it's just like, difference. be here relatively when the sun's up or something. Right, you, you know? know, I mean, and you coordinate the hours, you know, you've had the hours and that's according to where the sun is in the sky. And that's not a very clear um, definition. And so I think, I think it's it's a it's a it's a weird 
twofold thing that we have an understanding with time. On the one hand, we're way, way more specific about time and we get obsessive and we control our lives about, I mean, the 50 minute hour, you know, are we at 50 minutes? Are we doing this? I mean, we're very, no one had that kind of concept, A. And then B, the times that should actually have significance, like holidays, like seasons that have spiritual significance that you're supposed to be doing something, you're supposed to be in a certain mindset, have no meaning at all. It's just weird. It's like, it's the worst of both worlds. Well, it's just like what we were saying in the other podcast about truth where truth had a spiritual significance and it, the material aspects of truth didn't really matter as much, like what we would call the historical. Whereas now it's all about the historical, factual. Right. Uh, can you cite your, cite, you know, can you cite yourself? Do you, where, where are the studies you're supporting yourself with? Uh, and has no aspect of like mythological or divine truth. So man takes idols out of the sky to make them idols on earth. It's yeah. the same thing with time. It's the same thing with space. It's everything in modernity. I mean, Evola really defines the best. Modernity is just taking everything that every tradition and culture throughout the world has always understood as being true and turning it upside down. It's it's truth, it's time, it's history, it's space, it's everything. It's truly the most sick you can get because it's like, not only are we devaluing time by saying, you know what, the seasons don't mean anything. You know, the the um, the, the the phases of the moon and the, the sun, sun and the planets. stars. That's bullshit. It means nothing. You know, holidays don't mean anything. There's no spiritual significance attached to anything. It's all arbitrary. It's all bullshit. And at the same time, while doing that, it's the minutia, so, yeah, the it's minute. It's so about time. And it's like, wow, you were here at three o'clock and not three o'clock. And, and this is why the Germans are really the scourge of the earth because they they are the ones who invented the clock. And you know, I, I always I always I always think about this reading Kaczynski, like reading the Unabomber Manifesto, the Industrial Society, and it's the Industrial Revolution, and and so on. And um, he talks about he doesn't really know, doesn't understand why which I always thought was tongue-in-cheek, but I, I can't tell with him. But he said he doesn't really understand why the Industrial Revolution happens. Um, but he, he says whatever causes it is not something necessary. And, you know, excuse me, my, my typical, you know, rogue gallery, Descartes, Kant, definitely fall in here. But really, a lot of this was the Germans inventing the clock because it was this very German Teutonic mentality of being autistic and trying to measure everything, things that shouldn't be measured except in right. very esoteric, arcane aspects by scientists, philosophers. But when you build a giant clock tower in the middle of the city, you're telling everyone that they should be in on this. It's like it's like Newton's hesitation, not Newton, sorry, um, Tesla's hesitation with electricity. It's like, what I'm doing here is what many mages and arcane people in the past have already done. But if I go forward with this, I'm introducing a very dangerous art to the common people. And he didn't want to do it. It took... Um, Edison to say, I don't give a fuck about the wealth or the nature or the conditions or the health of humanity. I'm just going to make money. And he's the one who puts it into the exoteric. Same thing with Newton. He didn't want a lot of his stuff becoming public information. But again, it was advantageous to the powers that be to make it so to the social engineers. It's the same thing you see with the Germans as a collective entity. They're always taking all these arcane things. I will say the French are guilty of this too in different ways, but the Germans especially... They take all these arcane esoteric things and they put their pearls before swine. And now everyone is paying the consequence because they thought it'd be a good idea to take something very arcane like time and give it a specific measurement and put it in the middle of the freaking town and say, everyone, look, it's a clock. No longer is we have to do this around this rough time and this time of day when it feels like this and it's muggy. It's, it's 
you know, you have to be here at two o'clock, two thirty. Yeah. Do this, do that, and everything becomes robbed of any spiritual significance because it's atomized. And and this is um, again, this is a little, little off base, but I kind of want to go down this route. Um, I remember once in college, I was walking um, back from someone's house to my dorm with one of my friends, and uh, we was like midnight or something like that. And I stopped my friend and there was this like bench on a hill on that walk. And I stopped him and said, I want to sit on this bench for a minute. And I just want to look at the stars. And he's just like, what? And so he sat, we sat down there, we look at the stars and we start looking at the stars for a while. And I, and I said, you know, I think that if we didn't have light pollution, I think if everyone could just see the stars as they were, we wouldn't have atheism. People would just believe in God. And he laughed at me, and, and he's a very smart guy and, you know, a very, very pious guy. But he laughed at me and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What, like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I'm like, no. I said, I really mean it. I said, I think if you look at the night sky and you see this just vastness that's so beyond you and immeasurable that you, you have to believe in God. And I think that a reason we have so many atheists is that we have light pollution. He said, oh, that's ridiculous. And years later, we were on a phone call. He said, by the way, I remember that moment from years ago. And I thought you were ridiculous. And I've thought about it since then. He's like, I think you're actually right. And Definitely a lot less. But I mean, you know, you have atheists that are cosmologists who look into the stars all the time. Yeah, sure. But I think there's a sense, I mean, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean every case. But I, I do think there's a natural sense that if you look up at a sort of a, a, a non-light polluted sky. It's anti-narcissistic. It is, exactly. You, you see a vastness beyond yourself, which leads you to have to contemplate the existence of God. And maybe you won't end up there, but I think most people will. And, and, and I just remember a trip you and I took just last week or something with our friends, and we were kind of in a somewhat remote spot. And honestly, the view wasn't that great, but our friends were looking at the sky and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Look, and they kept just telling us, look at the sky, look at the sky, it's amazing. And I looked at it, it's like, it was pretty, it's a lot better than we have views in Lexington with light pollution, but it's not, it's not even... I, 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 I what I, it's what, not I remember in Arizona. Yeah, it's not an ounce of what it actually would look like unpolluted. And and I think you led me on to something um, uh, not that long after we moved in that really kind of changed, you know, kind of my way of seeing things um, that was closely related to that, which is you were talking about how, you know, it's it says, and I, I believe in Genesis, you know, God, you know, sets the stars and the plants as a guide, you know, for for, for humans. And we, we've ignored that. And now astrology- Not only ignored it, we've covered it up. Yeah, we've, well, yeah, we've literally covered it up yeah, with our own Light mind. pollution is unbiblical. Yeah, <laughs> but then we've also kind of just kind of demoted any kind of significance of the phases of the moon, the phases of the sun, the phases of the stars that always, always, always had so much significance to people in terms of just practical things like farming, um, but also just they had spiritual significance. And now we've all done away with that. It's like, oh, that's all old bullshit. But I think if you, if you actually were to look a, at the night sky that's meant to be seen and have that awe and that wonder, as you said, that non-narcissistic of something much bigger than you. And you were to also see that as this is literally what guides our lives in terms of day is determined by the rise and the fall of the sun. You know, the seasons are determined by the faces of the moon. And that determines every part of our life. When we plant things, when we harvest things. How you get pregnant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you get pregnant, when you're fertile, when your land is fertile, when you harvest, every element of society of society is like determined by this. And when you see that as having this like really divine meaning and time becomes spiritual significance, things like holidays start to make a lot more sense. Like this is the day appointed by God and the cosmos 
for this thing. Well, it's also why modern Christianity is so hypocritical. It, it should be putting as much effort and time and energy it does into combating abortion, which is an important issue. I'm not, I'm not demoting that. It should be putting as much time and energy into getting rid or fighting abortion as it should be into getting rid of industrialism, or at the very least, light pollution. Yet no one cares. But we are literally assaulting the image that God has given us to guide us in our everyday life. We're basically saying, fuck you. We don't care about what you have given us as gifts of nature. We don't care. We'd rather make money and have industrialism and live comfy lives and have our own light, which is a very Luciferian archetype, by the way. It's It's like, we're not going to take your light. We're saying, fuck you to God. We're saying, we want our own light. We're going to make it ourselves. And not only are we going to make our own light, we're going to blot out all of your light because we think it's shitty or we think it's not as good as our light. It's that's, inconvenient to our that's, light. Yeah, that's what we're saying to God when we do industrialism or at the very least when we do industrialism with light pollution. And yet Christians, totally, you never hear anything about some conservative pastor going against the evils of light pollution, right? But if we were really consistent about this, we would be putting just as much effort into this as any other concern. Yeah, it's really the uh, it's like the forgotten. In a way, in a way, it's even worse because it's like, yeah, you know, life is very precious, and it's like, yeah, abortion's evil because we're killing these lives. But it's one thing to take the life of an innocent person; it's another thing to to spit in the face of God, like we do when we take away the lives that He has given us. Yeah, we are reaching the end the 50-minute hour. Look who's so attached to time. (laughs) I will say psychoanalysts themselves are very self-aware about this irony because they themselves are very critical of this aspect of time generally. Um, But they, they, it's also why it's called the impossible profession. It's what they called themselves with with regard to this. But it's like capitalists have to perform, or uh, sorry, that was a slip. Uh, psychoanalysts, <laughs> psychoanalysts have to perform within this capitalist, uh, you know, time slot. You know that. Whereas, like, if you were just a shaman throughout most of history, like the equivalent of a psycho psychoanalyst, you're just doing this based on a specific arrangement of the stars, and you're just meeting with someone to do this particular ritual. Yeah, and they didn't have any particular time space because you didn't have to go to work in the morning or whatever. Well, I mean, obviously you had to work in the morning, but it was a much more rough idea of it. <laughs> and you also would work two or three hours, go home, take a break, have lunch, take a nap, go back to work, go to church, go back to work, do this, do that, go back to work. In a way, you were working more often, but not as much in a way, right? Yeah. But um, were there any sort of final thoughts or questions before we end? Oh, I mean, that really covered it for me. All right. Well, I guess we'll say uh, happy Hall- Halloween, happy All Hallows oh, wait, Eve. Wait, wait, wait. What's your favorite Halloween candy? I'm not really a big candy person. I'm more of a pastry person. I guess if I had to choose candy, I'd say like some nice mix between like dark chocolate, milk chocolate with almonds in it. I don't know if there's like a candy bar, like a mass produced candy bar that you would get in Halloween candy that does like, that. Like um, Almond Joy. Yeah, that has coconut though. Do you like coconut? Not really. Screw you. I love apple strudel. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff I like, you probably won't really find in America. It's more like European traditions. Like you bake this particular. God, thing. you're such a hipster. Can't you just name a fucking candy. Couldn't you just have said like Reese's Pieces? I'm not a. I'm not. It's like, well, you have to go to France to find the thing that. I well, you know what I mean. It's just. I'm sure if you go to like Rhode Island or something, they probably do that there oh my too. But goodness. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, a lot of the candies is too rich. 
I, All right, well, I guess I guess I guess Hershey's with almonds in it is that's kind of close. Yeah. Well, we'll see you next. Time. Until next time. <laughs>